Funding for WPLN News comes from you, our listeners, and Bernstein Private Wealth, working with creators and innovators to invest with intention and build the legacy they want to leave behind. More at Bernstein.com. I'm Khalil Colonna, and this is Nashville. Spring is here. The cherry trees are blossoming, and Middle Tennessee wildlife is popping up all around us. On today's show, we're going to spend some time exploring our wildlife and these cycles of nature with author and New York Times columnist Margaret Rankle. Stay tuned for that later on in the hour. But first, it's Thursday, which means it's time for At Us, our weekly segment where we take time to read the comments so you don't have to. Don't forget to add us anytime on Twitter at this is Nashville on Instagram at this is Nashville underscore WPLN and at WPLN News on Facebook. Joining me now with a look back at the past week is our digital lead, Anna Gallegos Cannon. Hey, Anna. Hey, Khalil. How you doing? I'm doing great, especially since I was out last week uh, for vacation. So it's good to be back. It's so good to have you back and it's so good to get back to and at us. Okay, Mm -hmm. so I want to go back to our most recent show on Nashville's queer scene and how it's changed in recent years. That one got a lot of folks talking. Yeah, so we did that show a couple weeks back, but you know what? It really did stick with people, and we got a whole lot of positive feedback about us talking about a community that you don't always, you know, see in the media. Mm -hmm. So on Twitter, Judah reached out to us to say, it's great to see all aspects of Nash being covered, but as a queer person, it was especially heartening to hear this one, even though it made him miss the quote-unquote old days of queer Nashville. Mm -hmm. Well, those old days and memories are going to be preserved with the things that we do here on This Is Nashville. You know, there were parts of that episode that did surprise some listeners, though. Our producer, Rose Gilbert, and I each paid a visit to Lipstick Lounge for that episode, which is one of 21 remaining lesbian bars in the country. That number surprised a lot of folks on social media, including me. So, yeah, that um, figure of one in 21 bars is actually from the Lesbian Bar Project, which released a short documentary in 2021 about why these spaces are disappearing across the U.S. It used to be that the Lesbian Bar was really the only place you can go to meet anyone, whether it was romantic, whether it was social. I mean, you didn't have really any access to anything else, really. As mainstream society started to accept gay people more and more. You didn't need to just go to a lesbian bar. You know, you take it for granted. Yes. Not realizing that, you know, it's something you have to support, something you have to nurture, something you have to, to go to. That was New York City bar owner Lisa Menenhino in the Lesbian Bar documentary. Now, we got some feedback on another recent show last Monday. We had a chance to introduce a lot of our listeners to Nerus because Nashville has the largest Kurdish population in the U.S. We really focused on how Kurds celebrate the new year and arrival of spring. That's right. Uh, one of our listeners actually reached out to share a little bit more about this holiday. Uh, Miran Mostahir wrote to say that, quote, Nuruz has been a major celebration by Iranians, too, and other countries that used to be part of the Persian Empire. He also added that the word Nuruz means new day in Farsi. And I really, really love that our listeners are willing to contact us and be able to share a little bit about their culture, because I never, ever heard of Nehru's before coming to Nashville. It's pretty cool. It is pretty cool. So yesterday we talked a lot about the closing of North Nashville's The Little Pantry That Could. 
and we asked listeners to share their experiences with local food banks. So a uh, listener, Sandra Reeds, actually contacted us on Twitter um, about how the little pantry came to her aid um, after a car accident. Sandra said it provided way more than just food. And she went on to say that the pantry had showers, washing machines, and it even went out of its way to teach people how to, you know, perform CPR, intervene during drug overdoses and like how to set up insurance. Sandra called it a, a haven for all and that no questions were asked, just kindness and understanding. True fellowship. It's such a loss, but for her, she said it was a wonderful memory. Mm-hmm. What else stuck out to our listeners this week? So two listeners reached out uh, to express their disappointment about the guilty verdict in the Redonda Vought trial after uh, Kaiser Health News reporter Brent Kelman uh, kind of explained the verdict for us on Monday. And uh, sent us an email saying that Vought's criminal trial and conviction for her error are extremely disturbing. She was made a scapegoat. She admitted that she made a terrible mistake, is clearly devastated by the result, and she lost her nursing license. She will never be able to practice her profession again. And according to Anne, she thinks that's enough punishment. We also received an email asking why the Davidson County District Attorney's Office decided to prosecute Vaught. I was curious about that because medical accidents are unfortunately not uncommon, but criminal charges against doctors and nurses are actually pretty rare. So in 2019 was when uh, Vaught was arrested and the Davidson County DA's office told the Tennessean at the time that it decided to actually go after her because she overrode the safeguards on Vanderbilt's medicine dispensing cabinets. It's something that has been documented in early investigations into the patient's death. And Vaught even talked about it herself during a hearing in front of the state's board of nursing uh, back in July 2021. I was pulling this medication, um, I didn't think to double check what I thought I had pulled from the machine. Um, I used the override function. I don't recall ever seeing any warnings that showed up on the monitor. Um, if there was a warning on the drawer, it didn't strike me. It, there are a lot of drawers with warnings. It's a critical care area. You know, that case had a really interesting and complex timeline tied to it and really appreciate Kaiser Health News reporter Brett Kelman for coming down to break that down for us. Yeah. And if listeners uh, want to hear the discussion with Brett, they can go to thisisnashville.org. That's right. Thanks to our digital lead, Anna Gallegos-Cannon, for this roundup. Anna, we'll see you next week. You're not going on vacation, are you? Nope. Same time, same place. <laughs> All right. Don't forget to at us on Twitter, Instagram, and Facebook. Let's keep the comments coming. Also, fill out our little community survey. It lets us know what topics you want us to cover here at thisisnashville.org. I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. Today, we have a very special guest. Margaret Rankel is the author of Late Migrations, A Natural History of Love and Loss. Her latest book, Graceland at Last, notes on hope and heartache from the American South, won the Penn Diamondstein Spielvogel Award for the art of the essay earlier this month. She's also the New York Times opinion columnist, and we're excited to have her with us. Margaret Rankel, welcome to This is Nashville. Thanks so much for having me, Khalil. It's an honor to be here. Really an honor to speak with you. So 
You know, this is my first spring here in Middle Tennessee. And so what of the what of what are those who are new here? What are we about to witness out there? What is there for us to see? Well, last night you got a pretty good dose of what we are going to see in terms of weather. Mm-hmm. I think the um I think the the understanding of Tornado Alley as being really a Midwestern phenomenon is shifting in the in the new climate and you know, we aren't officially in a tornado alley, but it's certainly starting to seem like that. Um, so a lot of weather ups and downs, um, not just in terms of storms, but also in terms of uh, the temperature. <laughs> it was flat out hot yesterday and now it's chilly and cold. And that's actually what we want. You know, we need we, it's it, it, the longer the spring spreads out the more beautiful it is. Redbud trees and dogwoods and so many little spring wildflowers. If you go for a walk at Radnor Lake or you go for a walk at Warner Parks or Shelby Bottoms or any of the so many greenways we have in Nashville, you'll just see something different every single day. You know, I moved here from the Southwest where it's not very green. And (laughs) what I've noticed here is like the rapid rate of growth and the quick emergence of wildlife that loves the sun. This place here, Middle Tennessee in Nashville, is teeming with life. There is life in the desert, but you you have to know where to look. Here, it's all around and a little bit intimidating, I might add. You know, what's your your recommendation for taking it all in? Just get out there in it. I think we have such a tendency in our our current age, to, to think that you to experience nature, you have to get into a car and drive to it. Mm. And that's just not true. It's not true even if you live in the very heart of the concrete jungle. It's there's life everywhere. You just have to pay attention. And frankly, you have to put your phone down or at least keep it on the camera setting and pull it out when you see something wonderful because it's especially in springtime. This is this is the time when uh, it's it's kind of a it's kind of an exuberance that you don't see any other time of the year. Even though every day is different in in every time of the year, in spring the birds are waking up after being so quiet all winter. It takes a lot of energy to sing if you're a songbird and in the winter you need that energy to you need to conserve that energy to keep in you need to keep warm and um but in the spring they're all courting each other and building nests and the other animals are um peeking out of the burrows where they spent the winter the ones that that sleep all winter long it's just a wonderful time to remember that um, in surprising ways, life goes on. You touched on something I wanted to talk about, you know, the distractions of the modern existence that many of us in this world are in. We're looking at our screens for most of the day, whether it's in our hands, on our desks or stands. We even, a lot of us even get our books through a Kindle screen. What are we missing when we get sucked into this online world? Well, I think we have to remember that the 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 purveyors of the online world are um, are monetarily invested in keeping us there. So it, it, I think it helps to think of 
um, of that as a form of manipulation. They're trying to make us stay on Twitter. They're trying to make us stay on TikTok. And um, and I think most people are, especially most Southerners, are cussed enough to think I'm not going to let that happen if they if they think about what's happening. It is a slower world. You know, one of one of the the things about the natural world is it it doesn't perform on demand. So if if you've if your brain has been trained to operate at a certain speed, a really fast pace um, to have a lot of bells and whistles, it's there's a there's an early stage of paying attention if you aren't in the habit of doing that where the natural world might seem boring, but it is so, it's so comforting when you get the knack of it to, to sit still or to take your earbuds out when you're walking and just listen, um, that it becomes very quickly self-reinforcing, I think. You know, you just, what you said has got me, I'm grabbing my phone and I'm going to turn off all of my notifications so I can be there. There is an essay in your book, Late Migrations called Secret. In it, you write about a really large colony of honeybees that have been living in a fallen tree in your neighborhood. Tell me, what, what did you take away from that experience? You know, it, it, it actually hadn't fallen um, for most of the time it was there. It was a, it was a mostly dead tree that was still standing. And um, a, a storm, much like the storm we had last night, blew through in the night and knocked that tree down. And when it uh, and when it fell, it dislodged a, a really gigantic honeybee hive, a wild hive, not a hive that someone um, someone started with store bought bees. And it just struck me that I had been walking by that tree, pushing, walking the dog, pushing my babies in strollers, later teaching them to ride their bikes. I mean, for, for a couple of decades, hmm. the, um, when, the, when the, the, the tree fell, the homeowner contacted the Tennessee Beekeepers Association and got somebody to come out. Um, because, of course, bees are just incredibly valuable. And that person put down a, 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 a fabricated hive, a store-bought hive, and moved the queen, found the queen and moved the queen to the new hive to try to persuade all the, the honeybees to, to join her. And he said that hive had been there for at least a couple of decades and maybe longer. Wow. And... I had no idea. And I'm a fairly observant person, but those bees had been there living among us for a really long, long time. Well, did you know right away that this is something you were going to write about? I almost never know right away what I'm going to write about. I'm a slow thinker. I have to ponder things. I have to sleep on them and live with them and Usually something else will happen that will remind me of the thing. And then I'll think, oh, why didn't I think of that before now? Did you, did you, did you develop this patience and this, this, this train of thought through like what you were saying earlier, like taking our time to slow down and to be with nature? Do you feel like your writing process is one with nature where it develops over time? It naturally evolves and grows? I like the way you think of it better than the way I think of it, <laughs> because I tend to think of it as sort of 
um, just being a little tiny bit slow on the uptake. Um, but uh, I do think my age helps. I'm, I turned 60 back in the fall. And so I didn't grow up with quite so many bells and whistles. I was uh, I recently watched um, the new documentary on Ricky and Lucy. And I remember thinking how that drove my mother crazy that we could watch I Love Lucy three times a day if we wanted to in the summer, because there really wasn't anything else, even much for children to watch, um, you know, apart from PBS and first thing in the morning. So um, I didn't have quite as many distractions. And, and I think that maybe helped uh, set my mind in a, in, on a different speed. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Ekelona. We're talking with this hour with award-winning author and New York Times columnist, Margaret Rankle. So we were just kind of talking about like pacing and how even in our city neighborhoods, there can be this natural world around us. Some of us take camping trips or hikes and immerse ourselves into nature. But like you said, you know, in your book, Late Migrations, it really shows how we can find abundance in the nature right in our backyards or in the middle of the concrete jungle if we know where to look. So, you know, I, and that's something I can relate to. I lived in Los Angeles for a long time and lived in Hollywood in the middle of probably one of the greatest concrete jungles on the planet. And I would look up from time to time and I would see a hawk or a falcon kind of hanging out, doing its thing on a telephone pole. That taught me to really pay attention. Tell me about your, your kids. When you were raising your kids, how did you teach them to observe nature and to see things? Honestly, I think they taught me more than I taught them. I mean, one of the things about having young children is that it is a, it kind of gives you a, a little a window straight into your own past because things that you had forgotten, hadn't thought about in years are suddenly the things your children are doing. And, and then that it becomes a self-reinforcing thing as well. You, um, my oldest had this just, he was born with this gift to, he could, even as a toddler still wearing diapers, he could squat on his little fat legs and and watch an anthill for a, a surprising amount of time and poke around in mud puddles. And, and that would remind me of my brother and me playing in creeks and mud puddles. And then I would think about tadpoles we had collected and, and watched turned into toads. And then I'd help my kids collect tadpoles and we could watch them turn into toads in a bucket. It's, it's, um, you know, children are just naturally fascinated with the natural world. They don't know what they should and shouldn't be interested in. So everything is interesting to them. Things that we might overlook or just dismiss as unimportant. A small child doesn't know it's unimportant. You mentioned storms last night a little earlier. And personally, I feel like those storms are kind of a rude welcome for a newcomer like me. I, <laughs> I, I know my cat definitely does. He let me know all last night. But but really, you know, I found Southerners seem to have a real affection for stormy weather, which reminds me of one of your essays from Late Migrations, In the Storm, Safe from the Storm. Margaret, will you read that for us? Oh, I'd be happy to. Wonderful. I, I really like this one. It's such a happy memory I have of my father. In the storm, 
Safe from the Storm, Lower Alabama, 1965. At my grandparents' house in the country, we live on the front porch where the ceiling fan blows the bugs away and stirs the steaming air into something passing for a breeze. At home in town, we are very modern and have no porch at all. There's a concrete stoop, but only the barest overhang to cover it, hardly anything to keep away the rain or the blistering sun. When a storm comes, my father sets his chair right in the doorway, straddling the jam. I love the storms. If I'm asleep, he lifts me up and carries me through the dark house to sit with him in the doorway and listen to the wind and the thunder. The rain comes and I feel it with the tips of my toes, but they are the only parts of me that get wet for I have drawn my knees up to my chest under my nightgown and my father has unbuttoned his corduroy jacket and pulled it around me and wrapped his arms around me too. I lean into him. I feel the heat from his body and the cool rain from the world, both at once. Oh, thank you. That time you shared with your father as storm watchers gives a glimpse into the bond you two had. What is it about those times in the storms that you cherish most? It's, you know, it was, I guess it was just that something was happening. You know, at the time I was, uh, at, at the age I was in 1965, we were living in a really small town and, um, it just, it was extravagant and grand and beautiful and a little bit scary. Not so scary to a small child wrapped in her father's arms because it hadn't dawned on me that anything bad could ever happen to me in his presence. So I just think, oh, it, it, it's hard not to respond to that magnificence. I mean, how could you not um, just marvel at how grand and big the world is, especially if you're very small. Mm -hmm. You know, you've written a lot about your relationship with the wilderness. Do you feel like that relationship has changed over time? Well, certainly the, the world of nature has changed in my lifetime. When I was born in 1961, there were literally twice as many songbirds in North America as they are now. And of course, uh, construction, you've only been here a little while, but you've already seen it, I'm sure, in Nashville. It just, the, the cities keep encroaching further and further into the countryside, further and further into the natural world. So there, that's part of it. But I also think maybe there were years when I was working and I was helping to take care of my elderly parents and my husband's elderly parents and the, and, and the children too, when I didn't have as much of an opportunity to just linger in it and, 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 and wait and watch what happens. And I, I, one of the, one of the great things about getting older is that the, that time does come back to you eventually. That's acclaimed author and New York Times columnist, Margaret Rankle. Margaret, stay with us.
I'm Khalil A. Colonna, and this is Nashville. I've been talking this hour with author and New York Times opinion columnist Margaret Rankle, who has recently announced recently announced as a Penn America Literacy Award winner for her most recent book, Graceland, At Last, Hope's Notes on Hope and Heartache from the American South. Margaret, before the break, we were talking about your relationship with the wilderness and how, you know, the wilderness and nature has changed over time and you're changing with it. I want to ask you, how has climate change affected the way you think about the natural world? I guess I should probably admit that I don't know anything at all about the wilderness. I'm not um, I'm not a backpacker or um, an endurance hiker. I've never done any of those great trails. All I know about them is just reading other people's accounts. So I can't really speak to how the wilderness has changed, except as somebody who reads. But just um, just in terms of of my own little half acre yard, we've lived in this house for 27 years and the the changes are visible. It's not, uh, of course, entirely clear that those changes are linked to climate change, but we I know enough from reading to know that the fact that there are fewer honeybees, the fact that there are fewer of every kind of insect where it is, in part related to climate change, it's in part related to pesticides, it's in part related to to the destruction of ecosystem, Um, it's in part related to the kind of plants that are in style right now. I mean, when people hire landscapers in Nashville, if they, you know, have built a new house or there's a new um, office building going up, they put in generally plants that come to us from Asia Mm. Um, they put in crepe myrtles and they put in, um, you know, flowering plums and flowering pears. And our native uh, insects are not evolved to recognize those flowers as food sources. And when the insects leave or die, the birds also leave or die. Um, and and that's true right on down the food chain. So um, it's, it's impossible not to notice those changes. Um, I have a whole bunch of bird feeders up in my yard, like a, a kind of an embarrassing amount of bird feeders. <laughs> and there's just not uh, nearly as many of our local residents um, taking part and, and many, many fewer migrants passing through during the songbird migration. You know, you wrote in... One of your books, you have an essay that's called The Things That I Knew at Six. And I, I may get the get it wrong, but I love what you were pointing out. You're like, a flower that is grown in the garden is beautiful. The f- same flower that happens to grow randomly in a field or in concrete is considered a weed and is pulled. And then, you know, thinking about like these flowers, weeds that grow naturally here and they're not being cultivated they're not being proliferated here by folks in these new developments it kind of to me it just feels like it's being part of what's natural here is being taken away for this new idea of what is beautiful does that reflect with how does that hit you i think that's that's it exactly it's um some of some questions 
of biodiversity loss are linked to completely understandable conflicts. Like people have to eat, so we have to have agriculture. And when we say, for example, that you know all produce should be organic, that's a little bit unrealistic in terms of feeding people, hmm. especially people who can't afford to pay for organic produce. So I'm, I'm probably going to take a hit on Twitter for that comment. But there are conflicts that um, are difficult to resolve when they come when there are conflicts between what the natural world needs and what human beings need. But the question of flowers, <laughs> that's not complicated. We don't have to have crepe myrtles, people could choose to plant service berry trees instead. They've just, in general, never even heard of service berry trees. It's just what's in fashion right now. And what's in fashion and has been for some time now, um, decades, is a green, unvariegated lawn of grass. And it's flowers with a um, mulch around the base separated from one another um, to set off the flower. And, and that's just not how nature works. If you want it's amazing what you can do in your own little bitty yard or on your own city balcony if you plant flowers that the that the the insects recognize flowers that evolved to live in our climate even though the climate is changing they those flowers do better you don't have to you don't need the poisons you don't need the herbicides you don't need the mulch you don't need the any of the expensive lawn care equipment and and tools that people use now to get this very unnatural sort of um, ecosystem that they they think is prettier. I want to switch up a little bit and talk about some of the collective issues that we all face. I mean, a lot of us can feel helpless and hopeless in the face of these gigantic problems. Your work really seems to grapple with the tension between despair and hope. Talk to me about that. How do you balance those? I guess I spend almost all my solitary time trying to do that very thing. Hmm. Uh, it is so easy to tip over into despair. It is so easy with a new headline that says climate change is advancing at a faster pace than we predicted or that um there, there are fewer songbirds that survived last year's drought or this winter's cold. It's, um, it's so easy to fall into despair about even just the human state, the people in our families who aren't speaking to us because we voted for a different political candidate. And, and what, I, what I generally have found just in life is that when the macrocosm is is hard to bear focusing in on the microcosm usually helps so i do still take an immense amount of pleasure and hope from the bluebirds building a nest in the nest box in my yard or for the spring beauties poking up through the leaves um, left over from last fall. It's it it's hard not to feel your heart lifting in the presence of new life and extravagant beauty. And 
I don't think that it's wrong to do that. I know that there's a certain cohort online that considers hope to be a fool's errand. But I but I don't see how we survive without it. I don't see how we can keep up the fight for a better um, community or a better planet if we don't look closely at the things that give us hope. If you're just tuning in, this is Nashville, and I'm your host, Khalil Colonna. We're talking this hour with acclaimed author and columnist Margaret Rankel. Margaret, one of your most recent columns was aptly called what to do with spring's wild joy in a burning world. And we've just been talking about this burning world a bit. I do want to talk about spring's wild joy, which is truly all around us. I'd love for you to read another essay from your book, Late Migrations. It's called Be a Weed. <laughs> okay. Be a weed. Hmm. Sometimes when I haven't slept or the news of the world already bad suddenly becomes much worse. The weight of belonging here is a heaviness I can't shake. But then I think of the glister of a particular morning in springtime. I think of standing in the sunshine and watering the butterfly garden, which is mostly cultivated weeds punctuated by the uncultivated kind that come back despite my pinching and tugging. I think of the caterpillars on the milkweed plants, unperturbed by the overspray, and the resident red-tailed hawk gliding overhead, chased by a mockingbird and three angry crows, and the bluebird standing on top of the nest box, protecting his mate who is inside laying an egg. I think of that morning, not even a morning, not even an hour, and I say to myself, be an egg, be a mockingbird, be a weed. Be a weed. Thank you so much for sharing that. Tell me, what led you to write that essay? That's actually a pretty accurate description of an actual morning <laughs> when um, a few years ago this is later in the spring than 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 now there the most of my most of the flowers in my butterfly garden are still sleeping they're just be, just just beginning to poke out of the dirt long a long way from blooming and of course we're a long way from having butterflies um, yet but that's exactly what happened it was a a hard news day. I don't remember what happened, but it was a hard news day. And yet the world was going on. Mm -hmm. The mantra of meditation, of being a weed, a reminder to not let yourself get paralyzed or stuck with despair, but to live. That's what you intended. Am I off with that? No, you're that's you ought to write a thesis. That's exactly it. Okay. You know, the thing about the thing about weeds um, that people find so annoying is that they are absolutely um, indefatigable. They are always looking for the crack in the pavement or the the little tiny bit where the where the um, homeowner forgot to spray and they'll pop right up and 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 the birds carry them the birds carry them and you know when when a bird eats a, a weed seed and then perches on it 
on a power line and poops, that often um, there will be there'll be seeds that will land on fertile ground. I have most of the a lot of my favorite flowers in this yard appeared because they 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 were seeds that rode in on a wild animal's back or um, in a bird's digestive tract, and I look for them every year. Um, now they're well established. I, it's there. It's a wonderful gift. I'll, often all you have to do to have a wildlife friendly yard is just to stop doing what you have been doing and let them and, and let nature take its course. Nature definitely knows what it's doing. <laughs> That's one thing. I. If we'll just get out of the way, it does. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. You know, you're, you're writing about grief. It feels so personal and powerful. I imagine it's taken a lot of time and care to process your own grief and find that place for the healing that our natural world brings. Tell me about that. It, it's one of the things I remember one time when I was in high school and I can't remember what I what I how this subject came up, but I said very confidently to my father, well, n nothing tragic is going to happen to me. I think when you're young, you think you know, you feel impervious if, if you're lucky enough to grow up in, in with people who love you and support you. But he just shook his head and he said, I hope you're right about that, but I don't think you will be. We all have tragedies in our lives. We all face terrible, terrible fears. And, um, and some of those fears are going to come to pass. It's not irrational to feel that way. And, and these days, the, the world itself, we have fears for. We have, we, 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 we're watching a war in which a nuclear armed, you know, Russia is invading a, a country that posed no threat to it. And it's hard not to feel terrified about all of those things. But one of the things that happens when you come out on the backside of a tragedy, when you somehow emerge from a terrible thing, it's not that you've moved on, but you've learned something. You know, you've learned that you can get through these things. I think that's one of maybe one of the reasons the pandemic has been especially hard for young people is that they don't have enough years yet to understand that they can come out on the other side because they've done it before uh, of something terrible. Margaret Rankle is an acclaimed author and New York Times columnist. Margaret, thank you for joining us. It's been a pleasure and an honor. It's been such a pleasure talking with you, Khalil. Thank you for having me. Oh, will you come back on the show? Absolutely. Wonderful. Wonderful. We will make the date. We want to thank everyone who tuned in this hour. Tomorrow, the show is all about hockey. Look, even if you're not a fan, you're still going to want to tune in. We've got a lot in store for you, including a search for the story behind the Predators logo. Spoiler, it involves a saber-toothed skull. This is Nashville as a production of WPLN News and Nashville Public Radio. Listen back at thisisnashville.org or wherever you get your podcasts. Our producers are Steve Harouche, Rose Gilbert, Tasha A.F. Lemley. Our digital lead is Anna Gallegos-Cannon. Michaela Elias is our technical director. Our executive producer is Andrea Tudhope. The masterminds behind our theme music are LaRange and Namir Blade. This is Nashville. I'm Khalil Colonna. We'll see you tomorrow, everybody, and be good to each other.